what's going to be the breaking point for McCarthy. What's interesting is through this process, he's weakening the position of whoever comes after him. Because like, let's pretend Scalise. Scalise now is going to have to accede to these demands. So McCarthy very selfishly is ruining the hand that whoever comes after him has. This is a bed they made. These fringe characters are candidates they've supported. He helped them get elected, and now he's got to deal with it. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Joe Garvey. Well, listeners, you may recognize that our very own Ricky is out today. She is sick, so we're wishing her the best. And pinch hitting for her is Joe Garvey, who you may remember from the Rat Czar segment and dating app segment. He shared a lot about his love life. We'll ask him about that in a second. But he's also a producer for the show and researcher. And so he stepped in. Joe, thanks for for being on today. My pleasure. And my best wishes to Ricky. I hope you uh, feel better soon. Yeah. Well, Joe, uh, you're in Miami, right? You, You castigated me the other day for talking about the weather too much when we opened. So I won't ask about the weather. But what I will ask you about is, given our audience's main connection to you is your dating life, why don't you give us an update? What happened with the lovely lady that you talked about on our dating app segment? So I took the advice of an audience member and I went on a nice cheap date in New York City. What was that? It was a it was a movie, a nice movie theater in Brooklyn. And then following the movie, we decided to get some food. And instead of going to an expensive restaurant in Williamsburg, we went to a halal truck. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, uh-uh. a couple hours later, I was not feeling so well and I came down with food poisoning. Well, okay. I want to say one thing. I'm no expert. But if it was only a few hours later, maybe the halal truck wasn't where the food poisoning came from. So we don't want to blame the state or the listener for this problem. No, of course, no. The date was exceptional. It was great. Uh, I I feel like it was the food truck just because it was my first time having halal, surprisingly, even though I've been in New York for over a year now. Um, And I can't say, despite the fact that I enjoyed it in the moment, I can't say I'm going to have it again. Well, will you be going on another date with this woman, though? That's more important. I don't care whether you eat halal again. Well, here's the thing. I really enjoy the date. I love spending time with her. The problem is dating just seems nauseating right now because I'm associating it with huh. food poisoning. That seems like a problem. It's a major problem. Well, you're problem. in Miami. All right. So when do you head back to New York? When are you gonna? When do we have an opportunity? This weekend. This okay. weekend. So you just got to rip I'm, the Band-Aid off. Yeah, I'm going to give it another shot. Well, keep us posted on that. I know there's some audience members eagerly awaiting the newest developments there. It's it's really shocking to me that she has not tuned into this podcast and learned that we talk about her every now and then. But I guess there's nothing to be worried about. You say you know, nice funny. things. It, she, the last time we were together on this date, she had mentioned that she wanted to listen to the show. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, Robbie's awful. Don't listen to it. It's a waste of time. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. You're going to be miserable. Don't do it. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that. So I I sense that she's if she's curious in any way, she's listened. So hopefully she's listening today. Send in a voicemail if you're listening. Our number is 321-200-0570. Also, listeners, if you have ideas on what the next date for Joe should be and whether it should involve food, recommend some restaurants. I know we got a lot of New York listeners or just people who are familiar with New York. But also keeping in mind it's winter, so it gets a little bit more challenging to have those cheap dates. So bring your creativity, just like you did last round. But Joe, let's get to the substance. We've got some good stories today. We're going to talk about a huge development in the world of Hollywood and other intellectual property. 
A lot of people are claiming that soon enough we're all going to own Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, Batman. A lot of these major assets that were created in the 1920s are starting to hit the public domain. We're going to talk to Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Lessig about what this means for regular consumers and for the heavyweights like Disney who have so much to lose from this development. We're also going to talk about Apple's complex foreign supply chain and what their dependency on so many different and sometimes problematic countries mean for those of us who are addicted to their products and also what it means for us as America, a country that's trying to compete with some of the countries that they've offshored some of this manufacturing and assembly to. But first, the saga over Kevin McCarthy's speaker bid continues to rage on. After two days and six rounds of votes, the House of Representatives has still not elected a leader. Nearly two dozen Republicans have blocked Congressman Kevin McCarthy from taking the gavel, and there's no end in sight. Kevin McCarthy, does he or doesn't he get to 218? It is a once in a century event for the leading candidate for Speaker of the House from the majority party to lose a vote for the speakership. You can't make a decision on somebody with nobody, and quite frankly, there is no alternative to Kevin. As Kevin McCarthy continued to insist, he would prevail as Speaker of the House. This is a healthy debate. It might not happen on the day we want it, but it's gonna happen. Kevin McCarthy proved today that he is the weakest candidate for Speaker of the House by a majority party in 100 years. There are a lot of colleagues that don't trust 20 or more of my fellow Republicans. If nobody budges, we're gonna keep going and going, unfortunately. My favorite president call us and tell us we need to knock this off. I think it actually needs to be reversed. The president needs to tell Kevin McCarthy that, sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. With that, I yield, thank you. All right, Joe, give it to us. Where, where do we stand right now? We're recording this at 10.28 Eastern Time on Thursday morning. This is a developing story. Certainly stuff will happen by the time we post this. Where do things stand right now? Yeah, so there have been 127 speaker elections since 1789. Only seven House speaker votes in history have taken more ballots than this one. So Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes if every member of Congress casts a ballot. And the closest he's gotten today it's 203. So just to give you a glimpse of what the voting has been looked like on Tuesday, first day of voting among Republican lawmakers, the first round was 203 votes for Ken McCarthy, 10 votes for protest candidate Andy Biggs of Arizona, nine for other current and former lawmakers. Then in the second round, every Republican defector backed Jim Jordan of Ohio, just moments after Jordan gave a speech backing McCarthy. In the third round, a Republican lawmaker Byron Donalds of Florida switched their vote from McCarthy to Jordan, leaving McCarthy with only 202 votes. So that's one less than what he started with. And then in the fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds of voting are on Wednesday, the same 20 Republicans voted for Byron Donalds and one voted present. All 212 Democrats voted for Hakeem Jeffries of New York. So I would not want to be in Kevin McCarthy's shoes this week. So, so if I get this right, Jeffries is getting more votes than McCarthy in each of these rounds. I mean, he's he's right there. He's six votes away from getting the speakership. Yeah, I wouldn't hold my breath if I was him. But this is notable for a lot of reasons that we'll get into. But let's pretend for a second that this gets resolved by the time this podcast goes up. Possible, maybe not probable, but possible. There's a report last night that from Politico, that there were these late night concessions that McCarthy made. He had already made a lot of concessions, but some of these 
concessions are truly insane, including this concession that one member can file a motion to vacate and force a vote on the speakership at any point. It, it, he had previously given in and said that five members, that was his previous concession, that five members could call a vote and force a vote at any time. Joe, the previous standard is what, half? Half, yep. So this is crazy, right? Like, can we just admit that this is, like, this is, the I think, the legacy of this is not going to be who the leader is, but what this process is going to do to weaken the very office of speaker. Traditionally, the speaker of the House is a very powerful position where they control what gets voted on, what's not, through the Rules Committee. They control how the House even conducts business. Often, what they do is, I think this was called the Hassert Rule, that the party in power often won't bring a a bill to the floor of Congress unless a majority of the majority approves of it. So these are all the kind of shenanigans that people pull, meaning like even if a majority of the House likes a bill, the party in power won't bring the bill to the floor unless a majority of the ruling party uh, brings this, uh, you know, supports a bill. So there's all sorts of power wrapped up in the speakership. This will, whoever gets this, whether it's McCarthy or Scalise, who's his number two or some dark horse candidate, this will be the weakest speaker of the House we have ever seen. Yeah, it's absurd. And, you know, I think Tommy Vitor summed it up well on the latest Potsy of America episode when he said, Republicans are fighting over a parking spot with someone who has no place to be. Mm-hmm. So th- yeah. who knows how long this can go on for? And it certainly hurts uh, whoever the next speaker will be. Uh, and if the defectors agree to McCarthy's concessions, you know, it seems likely that uh, a vote to oust the speaker, or at least a motion to vacate, uh, will happen almost every week. Well, yeah. Well, the threat will be hanging over everything, including, most worrisome to me, the vote over the debt ceiling, right? Like, we're, we're on the, the precipice of economic collapse at any point. You know, that, you know, there's like a a fiscal gun to our head at any point, and we're going to have to trust some of the most fringe members of the Republican Party to, you know, to go along with this. And a lot of them are stating already that they oppose any lifting of the debt ceiling. There there were some other concessions here that are worth mentioning. One is that the Freedom Caucus, which is this sort of extreme wing of the Republican Party, uh, they now get two seats on the Rules Committee, which is really important. This is the committee that sets just how business is done. And traditionally, a very coveted seat with people close to the speaker, because generally, if you're the speaker, you want to basically control how business is done. So he's ceding a lot of control there. He's also given another concession to the Freedom Caucus, the Club for Growth, which spends a lot of money on political campaigns and traditionally has given a hard time to some of the Freedom Caucus members in primaries, has agreed not to spend in open primaries, essentially meaning the Freedom Caucus comes out of this very strong. Not only do they have a basically a veto over everything because of that one-member vote, and not only now do they have more seats on the Rules Committee and they can control how business is done, but they also are setting themselves up to elect more members of the Freedom Caucus because they've taken out a huge opponent in the Club for Growth. Uh, there, There is one important part of this that I think is a positive development, although I would say is very small in comparison to some of the more negative developments. One concession was that they will vote on term limits. So there's a bill that one of these sort of holdout members is proposing to have a three-term limit. I support that bill, so that's good. But a lot of this other stuff seems like it's just going to lead to chaos. It's hard for me to decipher what exactly the defectors want from this. I mean, it seems just it's it's a political battle against 
the rhinos. I mean, do you see any of their arguments as substantive? Well, I think Republicans are calling themselves out here, which is interesting that Dan Crenshaw, for example, has had some of the more, I would say, barbed comments about this. This is about petty personal issues that they have or a petty attempts to gain notoriety. And it's it, it's unbelievably frustrating and they should yeah. be held accountable for it by the American people. That's Dan Crenshaw very conservative Republican from Texas, and you have no shortage of quotes like this. Let's actually kick it to Hannity, who had a pretty feisty exchange with Republican Lauren Boebert on his show that just shows you like how through the looking glass we are. Like Hannity, who's a pretty right-wing figure himself, seems exasperated as well. And I, I, I asked I'm you a simple question, Congresswoman. I, I, you know, I feel like I'm getting a, a liberal I'm not going an to answer from Kevin a liberal. McCarthy, Sean. Okay, so even if you only have 30 votes, Kevin McCarthy. you will not abide by what you told President standing, Trump to which abide I don't believe by. I, I got will it. Be, I feel like we've made progress. Not, look, I love President Trump. You're not going to turn me on him. You're not going to pit him against me. Not trying to pit him you. against you. That's what you said to him. I am standing. I have You're seen the, one the broken trust. I have seen the lack of accountability. Well, we are we are getting phone calls saying that we need to stop this. Kevin does All not right. have the votes for I speaker. Got it. Period. Thank we need you. to find a Yeah, I just don't see how them ever aligning with Kevin McCarthy. I, you know, I, the question going through my head is what's going to be the breaking point for McCarthy? When are his allies going to come to him and say, you know, enough is enough. It's time to step aside and find someone else? What's interesting is through this process, he's weakening the position of whoever comes after him. Because like, let's pretend Scalise, who yesterday was winning the the betting odds, like the betting markets had him slightly ahead of McCarthy in terms of odds to get the speakership now flipped today in response to these negotiations overnight. But it's still pretty close between the two of them. Scalise now is going to have to accede to these demands. Whereas if, if Scalise had been put forward maybe from the beginning he wouldn't have had to accede to any of this stuff. So McCarthy very selfishly is ruining the the hand that whoever comes after him has. Now, I'm not shedding any tears. These are all people who, you know, this is a bed they made. These fringe characters are candidates they've supported. McCarthy's own pack supported a lot of these people who are now coming against him. And so he he knew who these people were, and he, he helped them get elected and now he's got to deal with it. It is notable though to look at the the votes here, right? So Chip Roy, who's a Republican who's been helping negotiate with McCarthy, is one of the holdouts, thinks he told Politico he thinks he can bring maybe 10 votes to the table in response to the, these latest negotiations. That still leaves five hard no's uh, at least. There are, there are more, but there are, Politico is reporting that there are five hard no's and they're at least according to people quoted in Politico, these are not movable votes is what they're saying. So along the lines of what you're talking about, and McCarthy can only lose four. So he needs at least one of those five, and those five all sound like Lauren Boebert. So it is He's not puzzling. getting there. Yeah, maybe. He is not getting well, there. Well, we'll see. You know, they could by the time this podcast airs. The thing is, like, getting there is a relative term. I would argue that getting there with these concessions you made is not getting there, right? It's like saying, like, it's like saying you're president, you know, you like there's, there, there are these bodies where they have symbolic presidencies and whatnot, right? I'm trying to think of a good metaphor here, but you know, that's, 
that's essentially what it would be. It would be a symbolic position, but it won't be substantive. He won't be able to actually like it's it's so crucial when you're the head of one of these legislative bodies to have to have the controls that can help like that you that you could use to instill discipline within your own ranks. And if you can't do that, then you can't get things done. And I think in the end, and as as much as some of this is entertaining and weird, in the end, all Americans are going to lose from this because things like a debt ceiling are going to get mucked up. Nothing's going to get passed. Critical stuff isn't going to get them. We're going to talk later about, for instance, you know, the semiconductor situation in the United States. Like We had to pass legislation on bipartisan lines to get the CHIP Act passed. These are the kinds of things that have no chance of passing under this Congress based on some of the dynamics that we're seeing. Yeah, and as you mentioned before, until we get there, there's effectively no House of Representatives without a speaker, right? Yeah, let me quote from the New York Times. This is Brendan Buck, who's a former aide to two Republican speakers, and he's quoted in the New York Times saying, quote, the Constitution requires that the House elect a speaker and the vote takes priority over all other business. Nothing else can be done until the question is resolved. The House votes on a speaker before it formally adopts the set of rules governing the body. The incoming members of Congress won't even be sworn in until they choose a speaker. If Republicans are unable to muster the votes for a speaker, it will make very clear from the outset that they cannot be counted on to fulfill the body's basic responsibilities, such as funding the government and preventing a credit default by lifting the debt ceiling, both of which will be required. This year, that's a Republican quote <laughs> saying that. So this is trouble, uh, and it's it's not very reassuring. I think this is going to be the year of Republican on Republican violence. I think with DeSantis Trump primary looming and this kind of shenanigans going on, I you know you and I both came from Democratic politics. I I think that a lot of people in our circles. Are just kind of sitting back. When Biden was asked about this, he was he said, "Not my problem." And this is kind of, if you're a Democrat, the dynamic you want. And so, kind of a bummer that Ricky's not here because I would love to give her a hard time about it. But but in in reality, it is kind of sad, and it, and a lot of people could suffer because of this dynamic. Yeah, and I think McCarthy's just banking on not beating the record for longest ballots ever required, which was 133. When was uh, that for? This was 1855. It took two months to elect a speaker, oh my Nathaniel God. Banks. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny about this sort of survivorship bias we have as a country. Every time something weird and crazy happens or some trend happens, everybody points to the Civil War era and says, oh, things have been worse. But we had a civil war. <laughs> People forget that we had to have a civil war. A lot of Americans died. We, we almost split in two. Right. Yeah, I don't think you want to compare yourself to uh, that era. Yeah, and the president was subsequently shot. Reconstruction was all but destroyed, and we've had an entrenched system of racial inequality ever since. In part because of that. So let's. You should Google survivorship bias. The next time people talk like that, just because we made it through then doesn't mean we make it through now, and we certainly would not want to make it through in any way resembling that. So this is bad. This is unprecedented. This goes along with our Santos conversation the other day that there's just a lot of crazy happening right now uh, in our politics and i and i'm hoping that at some point in the next decade things simmer down a little bit so next up i got a chance to talk to one of my heroes this is lawrence lessig who's a professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School. He previously was at Stanford Law School and before that at the University of Chicago. He has been a pioneer and a public intellectual 
just at the forefront of so many important issues, including campaign finance reform. But the reason why I talk to him is because he is one of the foremost experts on intellectual property. Uh, the New York Times described him as, quote, the most important thinker on intellectual property in the internet era. And he has connected intellectual property, as he'll talk about issues to campaign finance issues. And you may be listening to this and saying, oh, intellectual property, snooze fest, I'm going to move on. This stuff is crucial to the kind of stuff you watch, whether you're watching Star Wars or The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or Mickey Mouse or Winnie the Pooh. Who controls these assets and what the difference is between that and, say, something like Shakespeare that existed a long time ago that anybody can make any kind of works out of that they want? Like, he talks about, well, what makes something something that we as a public get to control? And what makes something that a company like Disney gets to control? What are the economic equities? What are the um, public equities? Like, what do we as a society what should we be asking for? And there's a whole lot of shenanigans happening in plain sight. And he he basically gives us a history. How do we get to the point where we are? How unprecedented it is the way the United States handles the types of rights around these kinds of assets. So it's truly an amazing conversation. So let's jump in. Well, Professor Lessig, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, this year, at the end of this year, from my understanding, there are certain key pieces of intellectual property that have previously been protected by copyright that could potentially hit the public domain, most notably the Disney uh, Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse uh, cartoon. And this has led to a bunch of people speculating about whether certain you know, major, major assets of companies like Disney are now going to be subject to the public domain and for the rest of us to use and iterate on. And so I, I want to just start there and ask you, do you think something meaningfully changes at the end of this year? Well, it's about five years since we've begun to have material added into the copyright into the public domain because copyright has been allowed to expire. And that's because the last time Congress tried to extend the term of existing copyrights was the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act in 1998 which um, I was involved in challenging and took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld that extension. But by upholding the extension, the court made it clear that such extensions are the exception and it would be an extremely difficult political battle for these copyright owners to go back to Congress and to get Congress to extend the terms again. So though we lost that case in uh, 2003, 20 years ago this month, um, it actually won the war of stopping this incredible corruption of extending the term of existing copyrights. And Professor, from my understanding, your challenge to that law essentially said that you know the Constitution does grant Congress a certain authority to protect intellectual property, but what you were saying was retroactively extending copyright does nothing to incentivize anybody today to create new works. Is that essentially the crux of your argument? Right. The framers were very hesitant to create in Congress a power to create a monopoly. That's what a copyright is. So the power to create copyrights and patents is expressly limited. It says uh, Congress can create these monopolies, quote, for limited times. And what, what Congress had begun to do is to grant limited times but then to extend the limited times each time the limit was about to go out. And so it's like your kid 
you tell your kid you can have one cookie um, and you see the cookies take kid has taken 10 cookies and, and the kid's response to you is, no, 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 I took one cookie 10 times in a row. <laughs> and, and that's basically what Congress was doing with the copyright. So what we said was, look, the framers wanted a limited term. They wanted a deal, a quid pro quo. We'll give you a monopoly if after the end of the term, the material become comes back to the public domain. And um, Congress had broken that deal by basically perpetually extending the term of existing copyrights. When we challenged the Sonny Bono Act, Congress had extended the term of existing copyrights 11 times in the prior 40 years. So we said, you know, this is crazy. It makes no sense because if the purpose of copyrights is to create an incentive to create, the one thing we know about incentives is that they're prospective. You can't incentivize Gershwin to produce anything more. <laughs> He's gone. So it might make sense to create longer copyrights going forward. I don't think so, but you might make that argument. It's a plausible argument, but it could make no sense to say we should extend the term of an existing copyright when the work has already been created. And so lay out the equities for us. So if, if I get this right, clearly the the rationale for having copyright is to incentivize people to create new you know new things and get compensated for the work that they do and w what's the case for limiting that right well i mean the best way to see the importance of limiting the right is to recognize that only a tiny tiny fraction of copyrighted work continues to have any commercial um uh market at all right so uh, you know, it might be 1%, maybe 1.5% uh, of work that was produced from the 1920s has any commercial market today at all. But but if you're even to preserve that work or to digitize that work or to put it into a digital archive, in theory, you've got to track down the copyright owner and get permission. But there is no archive of owners to copyrighted mm -hmm. material. You, you just can't find those people. So all of this work becomes what's called orphaned. It becomes unavailable and can't even be preserved because you can't identify who the copyright owners are to clear the permission to create the work. When we brought the challenge in the Eldred versus Ashcroft case, one of the strongest amicus briefs was from people who uh, uh, had an interest in archiving film. And what they said was, look, the film from the 1920s um, was, and the 1930s and the 1940s was all produced on nitrate-based film. And that film will literally dissolve by the time the copyright expires to permit people to even just digitize it, even just archive it and make it accessible for the future. So, so the argument against perpetual extension is not so much about the, uh, you know, being against the 1%. It's not like anybody hates Mickey Mouse. The <laughs> argument is about making sure we have access to our culture and continue to have a chance to preserve that culture. And that and that's something we certainly don't have so long as these copyrights extend forever. So, you know, government makes a deal with you. We will give you a monopoly, which is a very valuable right. We'll give you a monopoly. The original term of copyright was 14 years, renewable once, but, you know, we've now extended it to the life of the author plus 70 years. Um, but we'll give you that copyright. And after that copyright's expired, you'll at least make sure that we have access to our culture and to um, be able to spread and share that work in a much more effective way because nobody has to clear the crazy permissions necessary to, um, to gain access to the work. Yeah, I want to underline something you said, which is life of the author plus 70 years. There's no reasonable argument 
that any more years beyond that are going to change the amount of energy anybody puts into <laughs> creating works today. Obviously, I think it's probably too long. But, so people are starting to are, are one thing I'm wondering is somebody I had Yohai Benkler as a professor in law school, and I remember back then it was like you know a critical period of time in the years after. The, the Sonny Bono Act you talked about, or what, what I think a lot, a lot of people were calling the Mickey Mouse Protection Act or something like that back then. Yep. Now, he, in a way, and I think you 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 two are, were kind of intellectual fellow travelers, he at the time talked about how the internet was going to change the way society looked at this and at least bring renewed scrutiny to some of these laws. And it seems looking back, he may have been right because I'm reading all these articles now talking about how, well, it used to be the big players like Disney against the average consumer. And it was a classic case of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, right? It, it was a cost to all of us as society, but no one person is going to get so worked up over using Mickey Mouse that they would be able to go up against the titanic power of Disney. But something happened with the, the the rise of a lot of these new internet platforms and the culture of creativity around the internet and, and the, the use of the public domain and the internet in particular that both uh, empowered consumers to do more and made them more aware of what they can and cannot use and made them more thirsty for this material and able to do stuff with it and find it. But also you had players like Google and YouTube, other powerful corporations who were starting to c- fight against Disney because they were starting to benefit from more stuff hitting the public domain. Do I have that right? Is that roughly what's happened? Is that the the two sides got a little bit more evenly matched over the past few years? Yeah, that's certainly true. And um, I think that the, uh, you know, the craziness of the system that requires you go out and clear permissions for work that's 100 years old um, becomes much stronger when you know, it's ordinary people who are doing it even for non-commercial purposes. Um, um, you know, when it's a, a, a few big corporations that have tons of lawyers who can like tell your lawyers to call my lawyers, it might not seem like such a big deal. But, you know, when you're talking about millions of people wanting to be able to create and to share and to comment and to remix um, on top of this creative material, it becomes really important to make sure that it's easy to do it legally. You know, at the beginning of the internet, there was this big fight, we called it the copyright wars, when people were sharing content using file sharing services like Napster or, um, uh, you know, uh, even uh, more peer-to-peer services than Napster. Um, and, and, the, and the argument was framed between those who believed in copyright and those who uh, did not believe in copyright, those who believed all rights reserved and those who believed no rights should be respected. But in the middle of that debate, there emerged a really powerful third movement, which was, um, it's not that you don't believe in copyright, you just don't believe in stupid copyright. You don't believe in (laughs) systems that make it impossible for the work to be shared, even when there's no continuing commercial interest in the work at all. Um, And I think that what we've seen in the last 20 years is this lesson has been learned again and again. There's great work by a professor at University of Georgia, uh, Paul Heald, um, demonstrating that when work passes into the public domain, it becomes much more accessible. I mean, many, many more copies of it are being made available much more cheaply, much more efficiently. There are people who are doing really high quality versions of the work. And when it was not in the public domain, you know, it really wasn't of much interest to the copyright owner to do anything about it. So it was old editions that were just hanging around and continued to be made available in their old format. But now it's in the public domain. People can make uh, ebooks of it. They can, they can do... Um, 
uh, colorized versions of uh, earlier uh, Shakespeare works. is a good example of this. Yeah, right? I mean, like and, right. e- and even Disney, right? Yeah, make this real for us. Even Disney, right, has has made you know tons of money and great creative works based on work in the public domain. A good example is Little Mermaid, right? Like, yeah, no, I mean, even Mickey money. Mouse, even Mickey Mouse, you know, Mickey Mouse's character is based on a Buster Keaton um, character. I mean, the, the whole idea of creativity, especially for Disney, was to take works that were in the public domain or were about to enter the public domain and to create a new version of it. And God bless him for it. That's exactly what creativity should be about. Every generation translates the older generation into their own genre into their own vernacular and then continues to make it real. Shakespeare, as you just mentioned, is a perfect example. I mean, Shakespeare is relevant today, not because we go back and speak 16th century English, English, it's because it turned into something relevant to us. But it, you know, if you had to go back to the estate of Shakespeare, every time you wanted permission right. to do a new version <laughs> of Othello, it would just be, you know, there wouldn't be new versions of Othello, it just wouldn't happen. So that's why the idea was so good originally to, to say, we'll give you an exclusive period, you can control it for that period. But it's part of our culture. And so we've paid for it, we should get it back. And you shouldn't force us to pay for it twice. Well, speaking of estates, I, I, I was you know, given that this is Disney we're talking about here. We're talking about Steamboat Willie, and this is a crude version, early version of Mickey Mouse, but it is Mickey Mouse, and this is the beginning of what will inevitably be a series of fights where Disney is going to try to hold on to exclusive control over the, each iteration of Mickey Mouse that comes out because Mickey Mouse evolved, like everything evolves. And so there's this case I found, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, which is Klinger versus Conan Doyle Estate, mm-hmm. which is a case involving Sherlock Holmes. And I feel like this is kind of an analogous situation because essentially what happened was Sherlock Holmes was developed over a series of books. And right now, and especially I think at the time of that case, some of the books had entered the public domain uh, and some of them still hadn't yet. And the Conan Doyle estate was trying to fight back against people using uh, Sherlock Holmes because they were claiming that they had uh, on the, the very last version of Sherlock Holmes uh, that they had, the last book is when the, 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 the right should start. And that the sort of complexity of the character as it evolved over time meant you can't touch the character at all until, you know, the last book plus a certain amount of years. They lost that case. Do you sense that Disney could try something similar here? Like, I guess the answer is they're going to try everything, right? Like, do you think they're going to make some kind of argument to that respect? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's likely they'll try as hard as they can to restrict as much as they can. Um, and so, you know, let's let's be very clear. When uh, the Steamboat Willie uh, movie comes into the public domain, what that means is you can copy and redistribute the Steamboat Willie movie as much as you want. And then you can make derivative works on top of the Steamboat Willie movie. Now, those derivative works have got to be your own creativity. You can't, you know, say, I'm going to make Mickey Mouse as a derivative work on top of Steamboat Willie because... That will clearly conflict with the other later uh, versions of Steamboat Willie, which became Mickey Mouse. So there's, there, you know, we don't have the Mickey Mouse is not entering the public domain. The trademark for Mickey Mouse is still associated with Disney. All of that is restricted. It's just this early stuff begins to be released. Now, if Disney were smart, you know, which it's possible, but if Disney were smart, I think they would celebrate. Uh, 
these things passing into the public domain and to and to really license widely around the early works and permitting people to do remixes and and distribute this early work um, and to encourage creativity on top of that early work, um, almost to affirm and to celebrate with, uh, Walt Disney himself, who was an avowed proponent on the importance and strength of the public domain. Um, and that way, in ra- rather than what happened 20 years ago, where Disney was set up as kind of the enemy of the public domain, and there was an enormous public movement of like anger and frustration at their constant efforts to lobby Congress, to, uh, successful efforts to lobby Congress to extend the term of existing copyrights, Disney could be a celebr- become celebrating of the way creativity happens. And um, it's plausible they will get that. It seems the internet right now is much more clearly um, evidence that this way of supporting follow-on remix creativity is beneficial not only to the creator, but also to the original creator. Um, But we'll see. Um, You know, we're we're constantly watching to make sure that they don't slip into one of these essential bills and extension mm-hmm. of the term of copyright again. I mean, it's possible. Um, they, you know, God knows that Democrats and Republicans both love to take Disney money, or Republicans actually less than before. I mean, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, is, now they're fighting it. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you. It's like a rather convenient fight going on right now yeah. for those of us who care about this issue between the the right wing and and Disney. Josh Hawley had a, a bill he proposed to basically uh, eliminate the copyrights. Um, um, and the Disney Corporation, but it was clearly kind of payback for Disney behaving badly from the perspective of Josh Hawley. And and so I think that, you know, it's just a mm-hmm. plainly unconstitutional law, even though, you know, I would certainly support Congress doing something to restrict the term of existing uh, of these of these copyrights. And even something, you know, uh, what seems like completely obvious, I remember way back in the day, um, I, I began. I debated a number of times Jack Valenti, who you know used to be the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, um, really amazing guy, um, and uh, um, but he was a vigorous defender of copyright. And in one of these exchanges, I said, "What about this, Jack? What about this as a compromise? What if we say uh, fifty years after something has been copyrighted, you have to pay one dollar." to the copyright uh, uh, registrar's office, $1. And if you pay that $1, you get to keep your copyright for as long as copyright extends. But if it's not willing, it's not worth it to you to pay the $1, then the public gets to use the work. Public gets to uh, basically enters the public domain. And even the idea of paying $1 to extend the term of existing, uh, to to continue to keep the copyright alive, uh, Valenti opposed. And his argument was, it was discriminatory against the poor copyright holders. Now, you imagine the poor copyright <laughs> owner out there who can't afford the dollar to extend their copyright, but is living on what? The 50 cents that the copyright is earning them? I mean, it's. I mean, it's I would ex- revise it then. I would be like, you just have to send an email. Because what you're mm. talking about is the orphan works, right? It's not even yes. just the dollar. Forget the discrimination. It's just right. the fact that a lot of times people. They, they don't even know or they don't think to go back. The old American way of doing copyright, which was we were forced to change by the Europeans, but the old American way was actually much more sensible because it said, if you didn't register the work and you didn't keep the registration alive, you lost protection for that copyright. And the advantage of that was yeah. you always knew who you had to ask to get permission to use the work. Well, now we have no... <laughs> requirement to register the work. And so we can't even know who to ask to be able to use the work. And that's what creates this enormous orphan works problem, which um, 
these ex- extended copyrights only exacerbate. Well, so one more piece of trickery that people are speculating about is there's a, there's copyright and then there's trademark. And right now, Mickey Mouse is protected under copyright. But some people are speculating that some of these companies like Disney are may pull try to to characterize works like Mickey Mouse as trademark and explain explain to me what that means legally and why that if they were successful would protect these works longer well i mean mickey mouse is trademarked by disney and what trademark refers to is a system of law that's not protecting copyright copies or derivative works but is protecting the association of a certain brand with a certain company and trademarks you know effectively are forever um, as long as you continue to 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 use the work in a way that uh, demonstrates your commercial connection to it. So there will be, there's no doubt that Disney will continue to control the trademark around Mickey Mouse. The question is whether controlling the trademark means that Disney can say, you can't copy the parts of the Mickey Mouse story that have entered into the public domain. Now, the, the legal answer to that ought to be easy. No, that's not what trademark means. Trademark has to live subject to the public domain that copyright is feeding and supporting. So that means I'm allowed to take the, I should be allowed to take the Steamboat Willie movie, um, uh, make a million copies of it, make it available for free on the internet. Um, and if I describe this is the you know early version of Mickey Mouse, there should be no problem with that because it's a true description of its relationship to Mickey Mouse. But I shouldn't be able to say, you can now get Mickey Mouse for free as if I was representing myself to be the Disney Corporation, because that's just confusion in the marketplace. So these are two different protections. And no doubt the trademark is going to restrict in uh, the ability to use works in a certain way, but it shouldn't be able to restrict the ability to have access and spread the public domain uh, parts of the work. To, to, to give the audience a sense of how aggressive these companies are, from what I understand, Disney once told a Florida daycare center to remove an unauthorized Minnie Mouse mural. They also uh, told a stonemason who was trying to carve Winnie the Pooh onto a child's gravestone that it would violate copyright. They are going after run-of-the-mill people. I used to be a school principal. It would always baffle me that we would have to ask permission just to put on high school productions of a lot of things. I'm like, this is public schools, right? Like this, why would, it seems like the kind of thing that the law should protect, obviously. Uh, Like in a perfect world, sketch out to us how far we are right now from the world that you think should exist when it comes to this kind of stuff and whether there's any hope that we'll get there in our lifetime? Well, look, um, the law is much more extreme than it should be. Um, There's certainly certain kinds of uses of copyrighted work that have to be regulated if you're going to give the original creators the incentives they need to be able to create great work, whether it's music or film or writing or whatever. Um, so if you're, my view is if you're going to make a commercial use, if you're going to make a commercial use by creating copies and distributing those copies, that has to be regulated by copyright law. Um, but if you're doing a non-commercial use, uh, you know, I think anything you're doing in your home um, or anything you're, um, you know, I think schools would be another example for works that have been out there that ought to be able to be used without having to clear and pay expensive copyright clearances to run a play inside of a school, that ought to be much uh, less heavily regulated. Um, But it is regulated right now. 
And it's heavily regulated right now because copyright policy is determined by lobbyists and by campaign contributions. Uh, and so um, when you talk about, well, why can't we get Congress to do something sensible here? It's because all the money is on the other side of sensibility. All the money is in favor of more strict control. And if you don't, if you don't do that, both Democrats especially and Republicans in some degree know that they'll lose access to a lot of this campaign funding from Hollywood and, and other copyright owners. Um, and, and so, you know, this fight is really just a manifestation of a much more fundamental corruption that's at the center of American government, which is the way we fund campaigns, um, which is why, you know, at a, at a certain, uh, you know, a while ago, um, a, a friend of mine um, who we lost to suicide exactly a decade ago, uh, Aaron Swartz, convinced me to give up the work on copyright and uh, take on this challenge of trying to get us a democracy that actually responded to sense or to the public and not to the dollars of campaign funding. Um, but that, if you want to understand why we have a crazy system, that's the simplest and clearest account. Well, Professor Lessig, this was extremely enlightening. Thank you for taking on this fight and the fight for sensible campaign finance. Uh, we're big fans of you over here, and we really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're doing pretty well if there's a commercial market for your work 70 years after your death. Yeah, I agree. That's that's the way to roll. I was thinking that it's like basically most people you basically want your set up your kids, right? And that's essentially what 70 years gets you. Like your kids will probably live hopefully more than 70 years, but if they get 70 years of your rights after your death, I mean, that means even your grandkids will be fine. Seven years is too long. It should be like 20. Yeah, I Seven agree. Seven years could be your great-grandchildren. Yeah, I agree. It's too much. And I think the point he makes that's the most salient is this orphan works point, which is it's so so often people aren't even claiming their rights, and, and those of us who want to use them can't. And we don't, and you don't know what kind of risk you're taking by using stuff. And his point about how sometimes physically the content is degrading, and if you put it into the public domain, others can copy it, they can preserve it. And there's sometimes people are more passionate about this stuff than others. Sometimes people don't even know their relatives. Like I, I could have a relative in India who wrote an amazing novel at some point, and I have no idea about it, right? And somebody in India may you know, be a fan of that work and may want to turn it into something, but doesn't know how to get in touch with me. Yeah, I'm going to Ancestry.com right after this podcast. Yeah, get you know your rights. I do have to know before we move on, uh, what school production did you ask, have to ask permission for? I think it was The Lion King, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think it was The Lion King. That is absurd. Yeah. But it's all of them, really. It's most things that you see on Broadway, you have to get permission. But who do you ask permission for? From? There's a, there's a whole rights clearance thing. Like, th that... You know, some, a lot of the most notable plays you, you can go online, you pay, and but it's a lot of money. I think I, I think I remember being thousands of dollars to pay for a public school production. Absurd. Wild. We'll keep an eye on this. This is one of those issues that you just do not see in the news, and it affects us all. Like we're so obsessed with all these different you know media properties. We all love our books. And the economics of this stuff is not widely known. And I think in part, that's why these companies get away with such bullshit. All right, now on to a very sexy topic, chips. Not the kind you eat, the kind that's in your iPhone. In August, Biden signed the Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors and Science Act of 2022, also known as the CHIPS Act. It aims to boost domestic research and manufacturing of semiconductors, 
in the United States with a $280 billion investment. So why is this important? The White House and major tech companies like Apple have a shared interest in moving semiconductor production to the US to both compete with China and limit their exposure to geopolitical conflicts. But Dan Clark and Anna Swanson point out in a recent New York Times piece, the public and private investments in domestic chip production, although they're significant, they're not a silver bullet for self-sufficiency. When you look under the hood of the supply chain of chips and other key parts of pretty much any modern technology, they're extremely convoluted and globally dispersed. It almost appears naive to think that self-sufficiency is possible here. Now, Robbie, there is a lot to react to here. What do you make of this? Yeah, Joe, I think that this is a question of interdependence versus independence and which of the two we prefer. So there's this Atlantic piece that just came out by Chris Miller, who's a Tufts professor, and he wrote this book called Chip War. The piece in The Atlantic is called Just How Badly Does Apple Need China? And the piece opens up with this this chip plant, the semiconductor plant, which was uh, the groundbreaking happened in Arizona recently. And this is a $40 billion plant. Biden was there. Tim Cook was there. The, the company, which is called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, their leaders were there. And this is the company that dominates semiconductor production across the globe. And Biden, in his opening speech, talked about how American manufacturing is back. And Morris Chang, who's the, 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 the founder of that manufacturing company, said, quote, globalization is almost dead and free trade is almost dead. And the author of this article, Chris Miller, called Chang's point a fantasy. The idea that globalization is dead is a fantasy. And I tend to agree with him. If you look at the data, which we'll go through, it is very clear that we are as dependent as we've ever been on others for semiconductors. And the big question we need to ask is, do we want to be fully independent? Is there a benefit of interdependence? And I think it's it's more tricky than people realize. Independence is an easy sell, especially during COVID when we couldn't get basic supplies on certain things. There's certainly a case for independence. But people forget that interdependence is one of the reasons why we haven't had major global conflicts or as many in the past few decades as we used to. And especially between major superpowers has not happened. Obviously, Ukraine, Russia, but there's no hot war going on between the United States and Russia right now. And there hasn't been a hot war between major superpowers in such a long time. And one of the reasons why people say that is because we're so economically interdependent. If China and the U.S., for instance, went to war, it would be so economically catastrophic for both countries that the you know you combine that with the fact that we all have nuclear weapons, that there's mutually assured economic and physical destruction there are some benefits to this interdependence. Yeah, and I think if you take a look at a company like Apple, which has certainly taken steps toward being more independent, you know, recent estimates suggest that 95% of total iPhone supply still comes from China. 80% of all phones are made in a single plant, Zhengzhou, also known as the iPhone city. I mean, iPhone represents over 50% of Apple's revenue. And if you take a look at where Apple's products are being manufactured, Robbie, I, it, the list, the list is too long. Yeah, well, let's let's actually talk about that because there's there's a difference when you say comes from China. Let's let's dig in there because yeah, there's a difference between manufacturing and assembly. So when we talk about manufacturing, it's the components of the iPhone, and so that's where you're talking about like far flung all over the place. Although mostly East Asia, the components of the iPhone are coming from all over the place, and. Uh, 
the most important and complex components of the iPhone are being manufactured in Taiwan. Now, it's notable that uh, there's the iPhone is they're actually going in the opposite direction uh, of what uh, Apple is claiming and some of these articles are claiming. So a growing number of components of the iPhone are also being manufactured in China. In 2019, an economist uh, who looked at the supply chain for the iPhone 10 found that 25% of the device's manufacturing costs were coming from Chinese firms, and that's in contrast to the iPhone 3G, which had 3% of its components manufacturing costs coming from China. So from 3 to 25%. So it's going in the opposite direction. Now, assembly is different. Assembly is happening almost exclusively in China. Right now, 95%, as you talked about, of assembly is happening in China, uh, though it is notable that Apple is now opening assembly facilities in India and Vietnam. JP Morgan estimates that 25% of Apple's products will be assembled outside of China by 2025. So from 5% to 25% by 2025 is a notable change. So so just to recap, manufacturing is heading in the wrong direction. More pieces are being uh, assembled in China. Notable also that Taiwan is where most of the important manufacturing is happening, which is very susceptible to the geopolitical issues that are they're happening with China itself. So if there's a war there, that Apple's extremely at risk there. So manufacturing is going in one direction, assembly is going in the other direction. Yeah, and the U.S. has been lagging significantly on the assembly side of the semiconductors and uh, major tech products, but they're ramping up the manufacturing. So if we take a look at some of the data in 2020, the U.S. chip industry captured 47% of the global market share of global semiconductor sales, but only 12% in chip manufacturing. That's down from 40% in 1990. However, there has been a shift where companies are now investing. Um, Here's a quote from the New York Times. More than 35 companies have pledged nearly $200 billion for manufacturing projects uh, related to chips since the spring of 2020. The money is being spent in 16 states, Texas, Arizona, New York, on 23 new chip factories, the expansion of nine plants, and investments from companies supplying equipment and materials to the industry. So Biden is obviously very pleased about this. Uh, Apple is, and other major tech companies. But I think the question remains, can we get to the point, can these companies realistically get to the point where they're completely self-sufficient? And is that even a a good thing for the structural stability of international relations? And it's important to note, China has declared self-sufficiency in semiconductors a national priority. U.S. sort of has declared that, but we're such a mess that, that doesn't really mean a whole lot, but it was, it, I was happy to see the CHIPS Act, which included $280 billion in investments, which is a lot. I wouldn't say that money is going to necessarily be spent like perfectly, but it's it's the biggest investment we've ever made. Now, the five countries essentially control semiconductor manufacturing, China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and the U.S. What's notable about this is even though that the, these five countries control semiconductor manufacturing, every one of them imports semiconductors. So because one semiconductor, they're not fungible, right? These are very different devices. So Taiwan is really good at a lot of the advanced semiconductors, for example, and Korea might be you know, better at some of the more basic semiconductors. And sometimes you need one and sometimes you need the other. So they're all, they're, none of them are self-sufficient yet. They're all dependent on each other. So in a way that's good because these countries need each other, but 
if any anything happens, any one of these countries, you know, another pandemic or these, you know, war breaks out or whatever, no country is going to have what it needs to well survive. It might be dramatic, but to just have the electronics that we all depend upon. Yeah, Tim Cook and other major CEOs knew that they were getting into this position when they decided to globalize their supply chains to reduce costs. So they have to face the consequences if things turn the other way and deal with that when it happens. Yeah, but the problem is we're all dependent on these technologies now. And so we all have a stake in figuring this out. There's also a question of the the influence of China itself and other countries, authoritarian countries that some of these companies are intertangled with and what that could be doing to our culture. Because Apple is not just a manufacturer of devices. They also control their app store. They also have a movie studio. And so these are key cultural institutions that are gatekeepers that an authoritarian regime like China can and probably has exerted influence over and you know, because Apple is so dependent on them, they probably, Apple, are going to pull any punches against China. And, you know, this is what basically Ricky Gervais was joking about at the Golden Globes when he was castigating, you know, members of the Hollywood audience saying, you know, you're hypocrites. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show, a superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? But it's not just Apple. You look at Elon Musk, for example. We talked about Elon Musk and Twitter. He, you know, notably didn't include TikTok in one of his more restrictive policies, and a lot of people were left wondering, well, does this have something to do with the fact that Tesla's uh, uh, supply chain is intertangled with China, and that the so-called champion of free speech has been a, you know, so dependent on one of the most restrictive places in the world and has been noticeably silent when it comes to Chinese restrictions on free speech. So we've got Apple captured, we've got Tesla captured, we've got LeBron James and the NBA captured, we talked about them. It's it's really incredible what China has done to our culture. It's like they don't they don't need to they don't they don't need government restriction of speech in the United States. They just have economic coercion to back them up. And because of that, like when was the last time you saw a movie, for example, that had a plot that was critical of China. I can't remember one. I, I, I certainly haven't. I'm waiting to see some of the pro-Chinese propaganda on my TikTok feed. I'm assuming it'll come any day now. Well, yeah. Well, why, Why, for example, when you watch Top Gun Maverick, is is our opponent a, like a faceless enemy? Like there's no, we don't have enemies anymore, right? Now, look, I'm not a big fan of whipping up hysteria against any nation through you know, through the movies, like we were too far in one direction at a certain point when every movie in the 80s was basically anti-Russian. But I just, I don't want our cultural institutions, they're more likely to criticize the United States than China. That's weird, you know? Like LeBron James has no problem criticizing U.S. human rights issues. But because he's so economically intertangled with China, you know, who's credibly been accused of committing genocide. He has nothing to say about that. And not only has nothing to say about it, but but went after Daryl Morey of the Rockets when Daryl Morey simply said that he stood with the Hong Kong protesters. 
Yeah, well, it's the price we have to pay. I mean, our entire economy and the entire economy and most of the world hinges on China and our relationship with China. And it'll be interesting to see how the conflict with Taiwan uh, plays out because it seems very precarious and China hasn't ruled out using force to reunify Taiwan and the U.S. hasn't ruled out uh, using force to defend it. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this story, of course. And, you know, one one thing that's uh, just one other fact that's worth mentioning is that we have we're currently been in a supply crunch of semiconductors, which is a lot of people are speculating is going to turn into a surplus. So a lot of this sort of pent up manufacturing capacity and the real potential reopening of China, which could be on the horizon, all this new investment in semiconductor capacity. This could be a key part of the the turnaround on inflation, right? This could be one of the important trends that gets us out of this inflation rut that we've been in. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, I think it's going to be a critical story for 2023. Hey, this is Ricky. Reach the Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. And we have a couple voicemails this week. Here's Katie from Chicago. Hey, guys. My name is Katie, and I'm calling from Chicago. I love the show, and thank you for all you do. I'm calling your response to your segment on the Home Ownership Society. Um, Largely, I thought all of your points were sound and really interesting. Um, I come from an economics background, so there's one point I'm seeing more and more in common rhetoric that I believe to sort of misconstrue the impact of interest rates in a harmful way, in my opinion. Robbie, you alluded to the fact that interest rates were almost increasing inflation um, by making increasing by increasing the cost of buying a home. Um, however, raising interest rates is the Fed's you know, primary lever against inflation. So, like even looking back at the price of homes, specifically over the last five years or so, the prices of homes skyrocketed during the pandemic when interest rates were incredibly low and borrowing money was essentially free. Um, so demand increased, supply couldn't keep up, and, and homes got really expensive. So, like, increasing interest rates, attempts to make borrowing money really expensive, um, decrease the demand of homes, but also preventing people from pumping a ton of the money, ton of money into the economy through other capital or large investments, um, ultimately devaluing currency and, and increasing inflation. So, anyway, thanks for all you do. All right, so this is such a good question. So I was alluding to an argument I made on a previous podcast where I was arguing that although the Fed claims that raising interest rates is kind of anti-inflationary, which it it can be in many respects, that on the housing front, I'm not convinced that it's anti-inflationary because inflation is just the increase of the cost of goods. And as we had previously talked about on an earlier podcast, when you calculate the true cost of purchasing a home, just the monthly carrying costs, and also like how much equity you're building up at home, the interest rate often is more important than the underlying cost of the asset, especially when you're talking about on the margins, like a 10% swing here or there on the cost of a house is way less important than a 5% change in the interest rate, for example. So when you dramatically increase the interest rates like the Fed has done now, and potentially leave it there for a while, then and so the you know the buyer can't refinance quickly, then the true cost of the good is going to go up, which means that inflation on housing is going to go up. And so this is the particularly frustrating part 
of the home ownership story for people trying to enter the market now is that the asset was getting more expensive before, so there was a certain kind of inflation in the market before uh, because the underlying cost of housing was going up and up and up. And now the alternative is that potentially the cost of the underlying asset goes down, but not doesn't seem like it's going to go down in any way proportion to the way it went up in the past few years. But at the very time that it potentially can get less expensive, the cost of borrowing is getting way more expensive. So in either scenario, you're dealing with a highly inflated asset. So it's it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's why I, and I, I definitely imagine this listener, support the expansion of supply, because that is the only way to get out of this, which is in my perfect world, we have reasonable interest rates. They don't have to be zero, but we're reasonable interest rates for for a consistent amount of time. And we dramatically increase supply. That is the only way to decrease the cost of housing for people. Next, we have Natalia from Staten Island. Hi, Ricky and Robbie. This is Natalia, also a fellow Staten Islander. Just wanted to say I love the podcast. I love the most recent episode, especially this discussion on snow is I agree <clears throat> it's a rite of passage as a child but understand that there should be a limit maybe five days is uh where we should be before returning to remote um but I actually had a comment on the article you guys were discussing regarding whether um it's worth getting a mortgage and taking out a mortgage and buying a home or renting but um just one thing I think you lightly touched on wanted to discuss further is that you aren't really locked into a specific high mortgage rate for 30 years, you could always refinance. And in that time, if your the value of your home went up, or even, even if it stayed the same and you paid down the principal, you could take um, refinance your mortgage for the amount that your house is currently worth. And any extra cash you have, you could choose to invest in more real estate or in other ways and reduce your monthly payments um, with the lower mortgage rate. Obviously, you wouldn't refinance unless the rates came down. So I just wanted to add that in that it's not, you know, completely dark time for those looking to spend money that they have on their first home. I love the show. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next episode. So yeah, Natalia is one of my best friends from growing up. So thank you for listening, Natalia. So she knows what those snow days were like back in Staten Island. So we didn't talk about refinancing as much as I think we anticipated coming in. There was data, and I can't remember if we mentioned it, about how uh, low income and uh, borrowers of color are less likely to refinance for one reason or another. I can't remember if we mentioned that. But the, yes, people can refinance. I think there's a challenge in refinancing in this environment because part of what I'm worried about is that interest rates don't go down anytime soon. So they may, you know, they could, if they go up to six, seven percent, maybe they come down to four or five. But are we going to get back to one, two? Are we going to get back to zero? Probably not anytime soon. And so for a significant amount of time, that cost is going to be really bad. Yeah, people can refinance. I wish more people refinanced. I tried to convince my mom to refinance during the, the zero interest rates, and she didn't, which was a huge mistake. I think often like the people who are the most vulnerable in these markets are the least likely to refinance, which is a whole separate discussion. But I agree it's a big part of the discussion. There's also the fact that you have variable rate interest rates, which are more common in an environment of high interest rates, right? When the interest rates are low, people do 30-year fixed. But when 
you see the increase in variable rate interest uh, mortgage mortgages in scenarios like this, like you're seeing it right now. And I'm about to enter into a variable rate mortgage. I imagine Ricky has one too, based on when she purchased as well. So I think there are different tools. So I, I agree with Natalia that the refinancing and we could add variable rates to the equation. But those things only matter if interest rates come down sometime soon. If they don't, then this dramatic inequality continues to persist. Yeah, I'm still waiting for housing prices to come down to justify the higher interest rates. Yeah, I, I just don't think that they're ever, we're ever going to hit that happy medium. I think the interest rates matter so much more than the cost of housing. Like you'd have to see a pretty dramatic if you if you put these things into a calculator, you have to see a pretty dramatic swing in the underlying cost of the house for it to make up for these increased interest rates. And so that's my point. Yeah, well, lucky for me, I have no down payment, so I will not be purchasing a house. Yeah, well, if you keep taking our listeners' advice and and get more and more cost effective on these dates, you can start to stockpile that cash. And one of these days, you and your lovely somebody can uh, move into that house in the suburbs. Listen, I'm ready for it. Give us give us a call, drop a line, leave us a voicemail. If you have a question, remark, or we messed up on anything, it's 321-200-0570. We'd love to hear from you. And we have a, a special episode coming out this weekend on Sunday. Uh, this is our series we call The Regressives, which is our opportunity to give our friends in the progressive world a little bit of hell uh, and kind of hold up the mirror to them and serve as an ombudsman. This week's episode is going to be all about the media. And we're going to ask the question, is the media woke? And I have a really good conversation with an author who wrote all about the subject. And we basically dig in and say, is there a media bias or isn't there? I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. And I think that's all we have today. We wish Ricky a speedy recovery. Hopefully we'll have her back on Tuesday. Thank you, Joe, for subbing in and for everything you do for this show. And we'll be right back here next week. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. <laughs>